If you can't put the chips down or stop with the chocolate or the ice cream, guess what? It's not your fault. I know you blame yourself, but it's really not your fault. And my guest today is going to tell you why, and he's going to show you the path out. He's going to tell you how the food industry hooks your brain to make you binge. He is a food industry insider and found his way out. And now he's going to show you how to stop binging and get out of food prison. So the big question is, how do women over 40 like us keep weight off, have great energy, balance our hormones and our moods, feel sexy and confident, and master midlife? If you're like most of us, you're not getting the answers you need and remain confused and pretty hopeless to ever feel like yourself again. As an OBGYN, I had to discover for myself the truth about what creates a rock-solid metabolism, lasting weight loss, and supercharged energy after 40 in order to lose 100 pounds and fix my fatigue. Now, I'm on a mission. This podcast is designed to share the natural tools you need for impactful results and to give you clarity on the answers to your midlife metabolism challenges. Join me for tangible natural strategies to crush the hormone imbalances you're facing and help you get unstuck from the sidelines of life. My name is Dr. Kieran Dunstan. Welcome to the Hormone Prescription Podcast. Hi, beautiful. Welcome back to another episode of the Hormone Prescription Podcast. It's Dr. Kieran, and I hope you're having an amazing day. If you struggle with cravings for food and binging where it's really harming your health and you know you should cut it out, but you just can't and you think it's your fault and you feel a lot of shame and you blame yourself, don't stop blaming yourself because there is a biologic reason that you are hooked on certain foods. And my guest today is a Fortune 500 food industry insider who prepared these foods and helped to create a lot of these foods that you just can't stop eating till you get to the bottom of the bag. You know what I'm talking about. And he suffered with food obsession as well and obesity because of it. But he got out of food prison and he's going to get give you the key today so that you can get out of food prison too, because it's really hard to improve your health if you don't change what you're eating. And he's going to help you know mostly why it's not your fault, what is happening in your brain. He discovered this and did research in 40,000 individuals. And now he is on our team helping us learn how to combat what the food industry is doing to hook our brains so that we are food obsessed and in food prison. You are going to love Dr. Glenn Livingston. I'll tell you a little bit about him and then we'll get started. He is a psychologist and former Fortune 500 food industry insider who got out of the food prison of obsession and binging and overcame obesity by identifying the brain triggers and pathways that fuel our compulsive eating and developing a program to reverse this pattern. He has completed research in over 40,000 individuals that clarified this pathway as well as the successful way out. He has been featured in the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Chicago Sunday, Times, ABC, CBS, and more. Welcome, Bud. I am so excited to be here, Dr. Kieran. It's I'm looking forward to it all week. Thank you for having me. Yeah, super excited to have you too, because this is a problem that we ladies really struggle with. At midlife in particular, I think that those of us who are going to conquer the binge eating situation when we're younger have already conquered it. But for a lot of us, because of the hormone imbalances driving our cravings, 
the binge and overeating starts handling us seriously at midlife. So it's the time when we really have to handle it if we're going to get control of our hormones. So how did you come to focus on this? I know you're a veteran psychologist. You've done all kinds of things with Fortune 500 clients. How did you come to focus on overeating and binge eating? Well, it's not because I'm a middle-aged woman, I'll, t- I'll tell you that much. Right. <laughs> I'm not just a psychologist who decided to work with overeaters. I'm someone who had a very serious problem with food myself for a good 20, 25 years until I was in my early 40s. I'm 57 now with a gray beard and gray hair and a five head instead of a forehead. I don't really know how that all happened. When I was a kid, when I was 17, I figured out that because I'm tall, I'm 6'4", and I'm modestly muscular, I could eat whatever I wanted to if I worked out for two hours a day. And I'm talking like a whole pizza or two or six muffins or you know, half a dozen lattes or I don't even think we called them lattes back then. But whatever you could imagine, if it wasn't nailed down and if you stopped by the Woodbury Country Deli and they were out of chocolate or, or Pop-Tarts, then the odds are that I was there first. It was bad. It was bad. But it wasn't a problem until I was older. When I was 22 or 23, I was married and I was commuting two hours each way to go to work. And I was seeing patients and I was studying and I was helping my wife at the time to run the business. And I couldn't work out for a half hour once a week, much less two hours a day. But I found that the food still had a hold on me, like it had a life of its own. You know, being a psychologist, a really good psychologist has always been the most important thing to me. And if you know anything about clinical psychology, you know that it's it's not really an intellectual endeavor. I mean, it is. We have to know diagnostic categories and treatments and everything like that. But really, you have to lend people your soul. You have to be 100% present and lend them your soul. And because of the food addiction, I wasn't really able to be 100% present. You know, I was sitting and thinking about when I could get the next pizza when there was a suicidal client in front of me. I, I never lost anybody, thank goodness, because I think I compensated in other ways. But, um, you know, I would be working with a couple right after an affair, which is a very volatile, high-risk situation. And I just wasn't 100% there because I wanted to get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and empty the deli tray into it. And that really bothered me more so than the weight because no one was saying that I was fat and, you know, I, I can carry a lot of weight before I start to look bad. Being from a family of 17 therapists, my mom and my dad and my sister and my cousins and my aunts and my uncles, and um, when something breaks in the house, we all know how to ask it how it feels and nobody knows how to fix it. Yeah. <laughs> When, when um, being from that kind of a family, I thought there must be a psychological approach. And probably the problem is that I've got a hole in my heart. And if I could just heal that hole in my heart by loving myself enough, then I wouldn't have to fill the hole in my stomach. And so I went to the best psychologist and psychiatrist in New York. My family knew them. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I saw nutritionists and dietitians. And I had a very soulful journey and I learned a lot and I don't regret it. But what would happen would be I'd get a little thinner thinner, and then I'd gain even more weight and I'd get a little thinner and gain even more weight. And the addiction seemed to progress. Initially, I had a sense of control. And over time, I felt like I lost that sense of control. And once I crossed the line of whatever diet I was trying to follow, it was, um, you know, all bets were off. And that went on really until I was about 42 years old. When I switched paradigms, and I'll tell you why, there are a couple of reasons why I switched from the love yourself thin paradigm to the um, 
dominate your inner reptilian brain paradigm. <laughs> That's very well said. Thanks. Well, one of the reasons is that the part of the brain that responds to addiction doesn't, it seems to be much more rooted in like feast and famine, fight or flight. It's a, it's a survival mechanism and it's very primitive. It's not the part of the brain that we think of as knowing love. It's more like the reptilian brain that says, when it sees something in the environment, do I eat it? Do I meet with it? Or do I kill it? It's like a bad college drinking game, eat, mate, or kill. It's really the mammalian brain and the neocortex where what we think of as more as us, where relationships are important. And, you know, before I eat, mate, or kill that thing, maybe I should think about what effect it's going to have on the person that I am in society, the people that I love, what I'm trying to accomplish, my long-term plans, my health and fitness, my long-term weight loss goals. So that was one reason that I wound up switching paradigms. And I got a lot of that from um, an alternative addiction treatment called Rational Recovery. One of the first places I read about um, uh, the reptilian brain being more responsible for addiction than the, the rest of us. I want to hear your story, but I just want to make sure that we put a book note to come back to talk about, because a lot of people who binge or overeat, they don't think they have an addiction. And so they're right now telling themselves all the reasons why, and they, well, that's not me. I don't have an, I'm not an addict. What are you talking about, Glenn? So I want to make sure we come back to that, but please go on. I, I can address that now if you want to. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I actually wrote an article for Psychology Today uh, a couple of months ago where, you know, the distinguishing features of binge eating or, you know, being a quote-unquote addict involve the feeling like you're totally out of control, hating yourself, um, having a certain frequency of episodes per week or per month. Um, And, you know, there's a very fine line, and it turns out that somewhere between 2 and 4% of the population qualifies depending upon what study you look at. However, 40% of the population is overweight or obese, right? And cardiovascular disease is rampant and, you know, diet reversible forms of diabetes are rampant. And and so obviously binge eating is not the only problem that we have in our society with overeating. There's this vast category of people who don't necessarily feel totally out of control and addicted, but are constantly eating beyond their own best judgment and wish they could do something about it. Yes. And, I'm gonna, and so I, I want to tell you that, that what I'm going to talk about today addresses that exquisitely well. And not all of my clients are addicts. A lot of my clients are just moms and grandmas who, you know, wish that they didn't have to have three pieces of cake when their daughters came over for dinner or, you know, just could stop eating over and beyond their own best judgment. Right. Um, so that's, that's a really important thing. I'm glad you brought that up. The last piece of the puzzle for me was that I didn't have kids and I wasn't commuting, I was working at home. And my ex-wife traveled for business. So I had a lot of time in my hands for a second career. And I chose to do consulting for a big corporation. So I was kind of on the wrong side of the war. I'm not really proud of this, but I learned a lot. This was in my 30s, late 20s and early 30s. And I, you know, I worked for essentially big food and big pharma. And what I saw in the big food industry, both in the companies and the advertising agencies they had working for them, was that they were pouring millions of dollars into rocket scientists to engineer these hyper palatable food-like substances. It's not really food. It's a concentration of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins. and, And it's all engineered to hit the bliss point in your reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied, right? Right. They are overriding your natural survival instincts to tell you that this is where the good stuff is. And that's why everybody is searching for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container these days. And what happens when you, I'm gonna switch to a different set of studies, 
when you short circuit the pleasure mechanism, they have a lot of animal studies where they short circuit the pleasure mechanism by putting electrodes in the pleasure centers of our brains. They find that an animal will press a lever thousands of times per day to the exclusion of their survival interests. You know, a, a starving rat will starve to death pressing that lever to stimulate the pleasure center. Now, I don't think anybody's putting electrodes in our brain, but when you walk out of a McDonald's and there's a Burger King across the street, you got to say to yourself, well, maybe there's some chemical electrodes floating around and our pleasure centers are really overstimulated. And as a result, our survival drives are driven towards these bags and boxes and containers. And, and the important insight for me was that it didn't have anything to do with whether I love myself or not. It was an external force. You know, the fact that my, you know, my mother didn't love me enough when I was little and she fed me chocolate instead, that really wasn't the cause. That might have been the particular form. But the fact that there have been ever more tasty versions of chocolate bars and, you know, chips and pretzels and all those things, it was an external force. And so I learned that the reptilian brain doesn't know love. So why am I spending all this time trying to love myself then? I learned that there are these external forces. The advertising industry is just as bad. They know how to fool you. For example, I worked with a food bar manufacturer that shall remain, remain nameless so I don't get my ass sued. And the VP told me as he was leaving the company that the most profitable thing they ever did was to take the vitamins out of, out of the bar. He kind of hung his head in shame when he told me this. So we took the vitamins out of the bar and we put the money into the packaging instead. So we made these vibrant, multicolored packages, which in nature, a diversity of vibrant multicolor would signal the, avail the availability of a diversity of micronutrients. Mm -hmm. Like think of eating the rainbow, a salad with purple cabbage and green lettuce and red tomatoes and yellow carrots, and you're eating a diversity of nutrition when you do that. Our brains are set up to recognize that. However, in this case, they were faking us out. They took the nutrition out of the bar and they faked out our brains instead. And this goes on across the industry. That's also an external force that had nothing to do with them. Um, so this is a little embarrassing, but because um, I'm a sophisticated psychologist and I've been on all these journals and you know periodicals and stuff. But the way I recovered from my own food addiction, and I, I was not gonna share this with anybody. I was really not out there teaching about food addiction at that point. I was troubled myself. I mean, I was going to seven different drive-throughs and you know, I reached 280 pounds and my triglycerides were through the roof and doctors were telling me I was going to die before I turned 35. So I was not going to share this. And I say this because when you hear it, it's going to sound a little bit crude. I decided that maybe a tough love approach was better than a love yourself thin approach. I said, there's this thing inside me, my, my reptilian brain. I called it my inner pig. You do not have to call it your inner pig. Most people don't like to do that. This is in my private journal. I called it my inner pig. And I made very clear lines in the sand that would distinguish healthy eating from unhealthy eating. For example, I will only ever have chocolate on a Saturday. And that way my chocolate decisions were made all through the week. I knew that willpower was the ability to make good decisions and there were only so many good decisions you could make. So I eliminated all my chocolate decisions and I had a very hard and fast rule that said, I will only ever have chocolate on Saturdays. If I, this is really embarrassing, but if, if I heard a little voice in my head during the week when I was at Starbucks saying, oh, that chocolate bar, the counter looks great. You've worked out hard enough. You're not going to gain any weight. Come on, go ahead and start, start your silly diet tomorrow. I would say, wait a minute. That's not me. That's my inner pig. Chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't need pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And this was a private experiment. I was not going to teach you about this, but um, it had an impact on me almost immediately. 
I didn't stop overeating entirely immediately, but what happened was I would wake up at the moment of impulse and realize that there was a choice to be made. And it gave me those extra microseconds to make those choices. I didn't always make the right choice, but more often than I had before, I was making those choice and those choices and I no longer felt out of control. I no longer felt, no longer felt like this was, was mysterious. I was no longer searching for this hole in my heart. The final thing that put it all together for me, I'll tell you that, I mean, the short story after that is that I played with different rules and, and eventually I said, it's silly to make rules that I won't follow. Let's make rules that I will follow. I made them easier. I worked on flooding my body with nutrition at a slight caloric deficit rather than over-restricting myself. And it all came together and I, you know, I lost the weight and I gained control and I found peace of mind and a process of about a year or two. The last piece of the puzzle that really convinced me of this was that um, I'd done this study. I was getting paid a lot of money to do these giant studies. And so I knew the, you know, the infrastructure to make that happen. And the days when internet clicks were cheap, I got 40,000 people over several years to take a study when they were searching for solutions to stress. And I asked them what they were stressed about. And I asked them what foods they turned to that they couldn't stop eating when they felt stressed. And I found that um, people who struggled with chocolate in my vintage always started with chocolate. They tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. The other interesting pieces of the study were people who struggled with chips and pretzels and crunchy, salty things tended to be stressed at work. And people who struggled with um, soft, chewy things like bread, bagel, or pizza, they tended to be stressed at home. But I called my mom because my mom is also a therapist. And I said, mom, I'm kind of unhappy in my marriage and I am a little lonely and brokenhearted. And it makes sense that I'd be going to chocolate from this perspective, but what happened in my past? Like, how did this all get set up? And she got this horrible look on her face. And she says, um, honey, I'm so sorry. I said, mom, it's okay. You know, it was decades ago. I love you. I forgive you. I just want to figure this out. And so she told me the story about how when I was little, that her father had just gotten out of prison and she had loved and adored him and she was devastated because she didn't know, she didn't know where he was. She didn't know he was doing those things and he was guilty. She also told me that she was terrified that my dad was going to go to Vietnam and she was going to be an army winner with two little kids and um, that she didn't have the wherewithal to love me and feed me and play with me all the time the way I needed. So she kept a bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in a refrigerator on the floor. And when I would come to her for something that she didn't have the wherewithal to provide me, she'd say, go get your Bosco. And I'd run over to the, or crawl over to the refrigerator and I'd suck on the bottle and I'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And you would think that if the love yourself thin theory was correct, that would have been a movie moment. We would have had a hug and a cry, and I would have realized that I never needed to eat chocolate in the first place. And, you know. <laughs> Only in the movies. <laughs> Only in the movies. Only in the movies. It didn't happen. What happened was there was this little voice in my head that said, um, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Your mama didn't love you enough, and she left a big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can fix the rest of your life and find love and, you know, feel balanced, you're going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go get more. That really convinced me that, um, I could give you some other metaphors, but it really convinced me that I was going to have to aggressively take control um, the same way that you do with your bladder. If I had to pee really badly right now, I would still finish the interview where I would tell my bladder, I hear you, I'll take care of it later. But, you know, I'm talking to Dr. K right now. This was just another biological impulse that, you know, that I could teach myself to control. And that's when I you know, started working with the inner reptilian brain and drawing those clear lines. And um, I kept a journal for eight years about all the things that the pig would say. For example, it would tell me it was just as easy to start tomorrow, but turns out that it's not just as easy to start tomorrow because 
No, wires. it's harder. You'll make it harder. Yeah, if you're in a hole, you've got to stop digging. So I kept that journal that eventually turned into the book. And when I got divorced, I published it and um, took off in ways I never expected. And so that's what I do now. I, I reluctantly at first told the story of my inner pig. And um, and you don't have to call it an inner pig, but that's what I do. That's the story right. of the image again. Yes, well, I'm glad that you figured it out. And there's no shame in this, right? I mean, I've struggled with overeating and sugar addiction and chocolate and all the things that a lot of women listening have. And there are people listening who are still struggling with this and they are desperately seeking answers. So the fact of you being willing to be vulnerable and share your journey really speaks hope to somebody who's wrestling with this. Thank you. Yes, you brought up a lot of points that I want to just highlight because I always put on the the hat of people listening and what would I be thinking and what would I want to know more about. So I don't think most people, well, I think you did a good job of explaining, okay, you've got your mammalian brain. That's the one that's intelligent and can plan and execute and has executive function. And then you've got reptilian, which is all about fight, flight, freeze, the ever- other four letter F words, <laughs> and it's about survival and that that's what gets triggered. You mentioned the bliss point. I don't think most people know what that is. And I could you just briefly explain what the bliss point is? And if you can get in there, excitotoxins and basically how Madison Avenue programs fast food and prepackaged prepared food to exploit these Things. The bliss point is a fairly simple concept. When you add sugar to soda, there's a point at which people say, oh, that's really good, it's really sweet. Oh, that's really good, it's really sweet. And if you keep adding the sugar to soda, at some point they'll say that's too sweet. So they're looking for the perfect amount of sugar to add to the soda so that it's perfectly stimulating and exciting to you without making you feel like it's, like it's too sweet. In terms of things that companies do to engineer the addiction, when People make, when companies make corn chips or potato chips, they take advantage of flavor variability. When we find new flavors in nature, we're interested in continuing to eat that flavor because there might be a new source of nutrients. And so people imagine there's this one assembly line that fills up the bag of potato chips, but there are actually a couple of different assembly lines and then they mix up micro variations in flavors so that you can't stop eating, so that you keep thinking you're finding something new. That's just one example. Excitotoxins are chemicals that excite different parts of the brain, which, which really damage your, damage your physiology. They're not necessarily good for you. I don't have a law. I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm a psychologist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I am a scientific psychologist, but I'm not a medical professional or chemist, so I don't have a list of the names of them, but all you have to do is pick up a um, pick up a label and look at all the ingredients that you can't pronounce, and <laughs> <laughs> you'll see that there, there are a bunch of chemicals designed to make this taste really good, to make it taste better than anything you would find in nature could taste. The effect of which is something called downregulation, which means that when your pleasure systems are overstimulated, that they downregulate their responsiveness. For example, if I give you a chocolate bar every day, by the end of the month, an apple is not going to taste that sweet. Right. Right? (laughs) 
<laughs> the good news is the process works in reverse. If you stop eating chocolate every day, you upregulate and get back to normal. But um, you know, I just want to interrupt you because you just reminded me of something. I had a memory. I at one point weighed 243 pounds, and I was addicted to sugar totally. And there used to be a Cinnabon. Remember Cinnabon? Oh my God! <laughs> I was just talking about that. Oh my God! Yeah. In the mall, and I used to like if I thought, oh, I have to go to the mall because I have to go to Macy's because I have to get a new blouse, I would immediately think, oh my God, Cinnabon. And I would start salivating before I got even the car to go to the Cinnabon. And long story short, after I lost all the weight, I got off the sugar and transformed my health and my life. I didn't eat Cinnabons. I didn't eat any sugar. And then one day somebody had a Cinnabon and they said, well, do you want to taste? And it Cinnabons didn't even taste sweet to me after a while. It mm -hmm. just tasted what I thought that's what food should taste like. Yeah. And then years later, I tasted this Cinnabon and I s literally spit it into the trash can because that down regulation was gone and it, I tasted the obscene amount of sugar yeah. Yeah. in the Cinnabon and my body rejected it immediately. So that's my real world example of what you're saying, so true. Yeah, we didn't have Cinnabons on the Savannah. Fag and Wilma were not sitting around eating too many Cinnabons and, you know, they were eating what nature had to offer. Right. And so our physiology is not really set up to deal with that. Right. But. And so thank you for explaining that bliss point. I love what you said about that company. They said the best thing we did was take the nutrients out and put the additional colors on the wrapper. I was just talking with a client before we got on our call because she's dealing with her blood sugar. So for those of you who didn't get the memo, glucose is toxic to your cells and it is what causes inflammaging and ultimately cancer and death and all the things you don't want. So she's recognizing, because she's tested her insulin, how she's struggling with getting it under control and her glucose. So she's really watching what she puts in her mouth. So she said, though, I see how high my sugar is and I'm eating these, I won't say the name of the bar. It's supposed to be a healthy kind of bar that everybody listening, you're eating too. Their name starts, has four letters in it and you think it's a really healthy bar. And even this one says like it's low glycemic and it only has five grams of sugar. Never mind, I think it has 16 grams of carbs. And if you look at the ingredients, it has palm kernel oil, it has sugar in it. And so the label though looks really healthy and the name sounds really fabulous. So everybody thinks it's healthy and that's yeah. Madison Avenue. And she can't stop eating them. And she keeps them in her office at work for snacks. And this is, you know, then she's, we had to have a little come to Jesus moment about, yeah, well, this is one of the reasons why your blood sugar is so crazy and you can't get your insulin and cortisol under control. And I always like to tie the podcast into hormones because hormones are your regulators. So all of you listening, I know you think you eat healthy. And in fact, one of the first things you want to tell me when you talk to me is, I eat really healthy or I eat really clean. I know, I know. And then when I ask you actually to tell me what you eat and you tell me the things you eat, I promise you that you're going to say organic, non-fat Greek yogurt. I promise you, you're going to name some of these bars we're talking about with four letter names that have healthy packaging and seem like real altruistic companies. And you're going to tell me that this is clean eating. And what I'm going to tell you is that you're being deceived and you don't understand and your brain's being hijacked. And I know I've kind of hijacked you, Glenn, but I have to, to spell this out for people. It's like cold water in the face. They need to hear 
secure this? Because if you're, and you said something, Glenn, in your story that you'd be with a client who just got divorced, they had an affair, right? And that's a high risk situation. And you were thinking about, I need to go to the deli and unhinge my jaw and unload food into it. And so what I want everyone to get is that if you are preoccupied with, I have to eat this thing, and you're thinking about it throughout the day, oh, I can't wait till this, till six o'clock, I can have my glass of wine, or I can't wait till the morning, I can get my coffee, or I can't wait till I can get to lunch, and then I can have my chocolate, or I have my chocolate every day at four o'clock. You are addicted. <laughs> and I know you're gonna get upset if I say that to you, or Glenn says that to you, but I, I say I like your definition of addiction. You know, it's basically eating, eating beyond, beyond your own best judgment and feeling powerless to do something about it. That's how simple it is. It doesn't mean you're living on skid row and have no job, right? You can be, have a high functioning job, lots of uh, financial prosperity, relationships. But if you are powerless to stop doing what you are doing or eating what you're eating, then you have an addiction. And the, the first path to uh, healing is admitting that you have a problem. Let's go more into the solution, Glenn. What did you discover and how did you, I know you wrote the book, but how, and you have a great ebook download for everyone, which we're going to give you guys at, before you leave. So don't worry. But how do you take your process of calling your inner pig, your reptilian brain and package this or explain it in a way that it can start to help other people? It's really very simple. It's very, very simple. And I would like to come back to one more point about the food industry when we're done. Okay. That's okay. Mm -hmm. It's plausible deniability if you want to remind me. The, the, um, the way I start with people is to ask them to come up with one simple rule. It should be something that you can and would do that doesn't feel too burdensome, but which would make a difference. See, most of us live who are struggling with eating beyond our own best judgment. We're struggling with food in any way. We're living in a feast and famine world. There's this old nursery rhyme that says, when she was good, she was very, very good, but when she was bad, she was hard. And that's how most people live with food. They go in these really tight diets, they over-restrict their calories and nutrition until they can't take it anymore. They lose some weight, and then they bounce back the other way. Because if your brain perceives that you live in an environment where nutrition and calories are insufficient, then as soon as they're available, it's going to say, oh, the harvest is here, I better hoard all that I can. This is the only reason that I can think of why feeling too full is a trigger for people to eat more, for a lot of people to eat more. But regardless, you want to choose one simple rule that creates a low bar. Most people set the bar way too high and they can't sustain it, and then they fail. So that could be something like, um, I'll always put my fork down between bites. Or I knew this truck driver who ate fast food all day long and he said, I'm not gonna stop eating at fast food restaurants, but I won't go back for seconds. And he eventually lost 150 pounds. Not, not lonely with that rule, but that's what got him started. Mm -hmm. uh, people will say, no, I won't eat after 7 p.m. I'll never eat after dinner again. Or, um, you know, I will only have pretzels on Saturdays at a major league baseball game. Or it, your imagination is the only limit on what this rule could be. But mm -hmm. you just want it to be something simple that you can and will do. Once you have that rule, you start to aim for it. And you listen for an inner voice that suggests that you should break it. And that inner voice will be there. You call it something that is not a cute pet. This is not your inner wounded child or anything like that. This is the reptilian brain. And you listen for the justification to break the rule. It will definitely be there. You can start tomorrow. You worked out hard enough. 
this doesn't really count. I, I know you said you wouldn't eat after seven o'clock, but this is just steamed broccoli and sea salt. Come on, nobody would really fault you for having that. Anything that suggests that you're going to break the rule is your inner reptilian brain or food monster. And when your food monster squawks, you want to pay attention to it. As soon as you recognize that, that your inner pig is squealing or your food monster is squawking, you want to take a deep breath. And I learned from Laurie Hammond that if we take, if we breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of 11, that we're actually switching nervous systems. What, what happens when you, your feast and famine reptilian brain is activated is your body's prepared for action. It thinks there's an emergency. This is when people say, just hand over the chocolate or nobody gets hurt. Every bone in your body thinks we have to do this and all your best thinking goes out the window. So you have to switch nervous systems at that point. If you breathe in for seven and out for a count of 11, you are telling your system that you there's no emergency here, right? If there was a tiger chasing you, you wouldn't have time to breathe in, to breathe out for a count of 11 and breathe in for shorter than you breathe out. So you're switching from the, um, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, I mix them up sometimes. The sympathetic nervous system is the one that um, That's gets the us fight, all- flight, freeze. Yeah, yeah. So you want to go in parasympathetic. Right, so you're switching from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic. Once you've taken a couple of those breaths, then what you want to do, carry around a pad and paper with you or write it on your smartphone, write down exactly what your food monster is saying. You know, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and that grows on a plant, so really it's a vegetable. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever silly thing the the food monster is saying, write it down and then take another few breaths. Say, why do you want me to eat this food monster? Why should I break the rule and binge? Or overeat, why should I break my rule? Write down whatever it says. Then take a few more breaths and write down why it's wrong, right? Like I gave you an example before, you can't start tomorrow, first of all, because now is the only time you can ever eat. You always need to use the present moment to eat healthy. It will not be easier tomorrow because of the principle of neuroplasticity, which says that what fires together, wires together. So you're going to strengthen the association if you have a craving and indulge that today. It'll be harder to start tomorrow if you're in a hole, stop digging. And you write that down and you take another breath and you ask yourself if you're calm. And then you ask yourself, is there anything that you authentically need? More often than not, a lot of these seemingly irresistible cravings come because we've allowed our blood sugar to get destabilized. We skipped breakfast or, or lunch, or maybe we had something high glycemic, too high glycemic earlier in the day, and so now we're crashing, and your, your body doesn't like that. It likes to maintain homeostasis. So you're fueling the physical craving, and then there are all these fat cats in white suits with mustaches that are laughing all the way to the bank when you choose their concoctions as opposed to what nature has to offer. So consider... What can you have that would be healthy that nature has to offer? For me, I finally got off of chocolate when I started having a kale and banana smoothie every day. Whole fruits and vegetables for me, that's what really did it. Other people have different dietary philosophies. Some people you know, will have a piece of grilled chicken and they feel better. But what is it that your natural diet would provide that would stabilize your blood sugar so that you wouldn't have this intense craving? Real um, food. Real food, yes. <laughs> Real food. It's amazing. Yes. So thank you for sharing that. And you said you wanted me to remind you something else about the food industry. Don't want to forget that. What you have to recognize is that the consumer wants plausible deniability. I don't know if there's such a thing as a healthy potato chip. I just don't know if it's possible. Maybe it is. But I remember when companies started adding vitamin E, oatmeal, olive oil, avocado oil to potato chips. And 
they would blast it on the label, you know, now with avocado oil. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yay, that's a healthy potato chip. (laughs) Right, right. And ignores the fact that the salt in there can still cause a stroke, even, even if you don't have high blood pressure. It ignores the fact that there are acrylamides created when you fry the chip. Um, it ignores the amount of oil. It ignores the density of calories that you're taking into your body with, without the nutrition to really give your body what it needs. But the consumer is after plausible deniability. If you remember that, you can actually go through a supermarket and look at some packaged foods and ask yourself, how is this manufacturer giving me plausible deniability? And you won't look at those foods the same way after that. So what does so, plausible deniability mean exactly? Well, it means that you can deny the fact that you're um, eating something unhealthy. You can eat a potato chip and think that you're eating it health, you're being healthy. I think it's okay. Like I don't preach any particular way of eating. I, I happen to think, and I have my ideas about it, but I don't preach a particular way of eating. I see the most damage done when people think they're eating healthy when they're not. Just what you said before about what people say to you when they come in. So They've that's what you're this- calling plausible deniability, that... It's plausible that we could be in denial that the fact that we think that that's or we think it's healthy, but it's really not. So that's a plot. That's what you're saying. Yeah. These food bars are really good for me because they have a nice name and they've got some natural ingredients. And it doesn't matter that the sweetener that they're using is still going to wreak havoc with my blood sugar. It doesn't matter that they've got all these extra carbohydrates okay. to go along with it because they say it's only five grams. It's you know five grams of protein. That's plausible deniability. We look at one healthy thing that they might be doing and overlook all the rest. It's like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Right. You know, sometimes I just ask myself, are we consumers really that disinterested and confused and unintelligent and don't care about what we're consuming? Do we want to be fooled by food labels and lulled by Madison Avenue into this plausible deniability? Like what, what is it in us that is falling for this to such a degree that we are having the rates of cardiovascular disease and cancer and all the things that sugar and unhealthy fats contribute to? I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. We're of two minds. We have reptilian brains and we have our rational selves. Mm-hmm. And the rational self will say, no, I only want to eat what's healthy. I want to do the research. I want to really know what I should be putting in my body. I work really hard to eat healthy. But the reptilian brain says, gimme, 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 gimme. <laughs> <Right? laughs> now, give me now. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the problem. And what manufacturers are good at doing is disabling your rational self. They'll they'll give you a justification so that you feel okay about giving the lizard brain what it really wants. That's why we wind up with this society. I know you asked me to come up with a couple of quotes, but this is one of my favorites. Although I can't pronounce his name, Jakardo Prishnahurt. I should know how to pronounce his name. What he said said is, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And I believe that's what's happened. I think our society is profoundly sick in the way that they eat and the way that they promote us to eat. I think that nutritional, good nutritional information is very hard to get. I think that people, Camus said, the truth is a poor competitor in the marketplace of ideas. And I think that the cold hard truth about food is too much for people to stomach. I think most people don't want to eat whole natural foods. I think that we have been conditioned to the hyper palatable, supersized flavors and concentrations of calories that are in 
these packaged foods. And um, I think as a result, we all kind of laugh about it and justify slowly killing ourselves with food. I think we, it's a tacit agreement we have in society, just go into a restaurant and watch what people, what people have. It's part of the social fabric. And if you want to be healthy, you have to opt out of some of that at least. You know, Glenn, you just gave me one of the biggest ahas ever today. So thank you. This concept of plausible deniability and what you said about from Camus, the truth is the worst competitor in the marketplace. And that and that really I never saw it as this war between the mammalian and reptilian brains and that that's what Madison Avenue is exploiting. Feed that reptilian brain to hook you into the addictive behavior, which you have no control over, but give your rational brain a nice pretty green label that says low fat or no added sugar or whatever, whatever lie we need to believe to bypass the fact that we actually pick it up and think it's healthy to hook into our reptilian brain. Like I never thought about it in those terms. So this is revolutionary. And I thank you for, for your unique perspective and way of explaining it. And hopefully you guys listening are getting what Glenn is sharing with you. Because if you are right now, you're pretty angry and you're pretty self-righteously indignant about the fact that you are being exploited, that your biology is being exploited in this way. And I want to know what you're going to want do about it. So I want you to post on my Instagram. I want you to share with me on Facebook. What are you going to do about this to one, unhook yourself and two, maybe lobby with the food industry. Glenn has ebook for you about never binging again, stop overeating and binge eating and reprogram yourself to think like a permanently thin person on the food plan of your choice. I know there are lots of you out there who would like that. We will have the link in the show notes and Glenn, tell them a little bit about that. Well, I've got three things for you. If you mm -hmm. go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button, mm -hmm. sign up for the reader bonus list. You'll get a copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. We have almost 13,000 reviews. It's um, That's more than the Da Vinci Code. This is a pretty popular thing. I hate to brag about it myself, but there's nobody behind me bragging about it. So you'll get a free copy in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. If you want the paperback with the Audible, there's a charge for that. I know this sounds a little weird and harsh in theory when I'm Talking to it, you must be saying, why does Dr. K have this Dr. Ryan who's got a pig inside of him and it sounds really weird. But it's actually a very compassionate, soulful process. And so I recorded a whole bunch of full-length sessions that I want to give you for free to listen to, where we take people from feeling hopeless and powerless and out of control, feeling enthusiastic and hopeful and powerful in just one session. And the last thing is we've got a set of food plan starter templates so that you can see some example rules that you might want to start with that might fit your dietary philosophy. So neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button. Yes, go there, click the button, stop binge eating and overeating, get the help that you need. Thank you so much, Glenn Livingston, for sharing your journey and your expertise and your insight and these wonderful resources with us so that we can stop binge eating and overeating at midlife because we don't want our brains hijacked. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, it was delightful. And again, I challenge you all, definitely check out Dr. Glenn's information, um, his ebook, and all the wonderful resources that he's sharing with you. There really is a way out of your misery. Hormones are the programmers in your body. And the biggest action that you take every day that programs how your hormones behave is what you put in your mouth. So 
So if you've listened to me long enough and you've been in my community, you know that I say that the food you eat is what is programming your hormones to either be in a harmonious state or a state of havoc. So the choice is up to you. And if you're, you've lost control of what you're putting in your mouth, there is help. So check out Dr. Glenn's information. Thanks for joining us. And we will see you on the podcast next week for more of the hormone prescription. Thank you so much for listening. I know that incredible vitality occurs for women over 40 when we learn to speak hormone and balance these vital regulators to create the health and the life that we deserve. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you'd give me a review and subscribe. It really does help this podcast out so much. You can visit thehormoneprescription.com where we have some free gifts for you. And you can sign up to have a hormone evaluation with me on the podcast to gain clarity into your personal situation. Until next time, remember, take small steps each day to balance your hormones and watch the wonderful changes in your health that begin to unfold for you. Talk to you soon.